0: Hello, and welcome to the Headlines podcast, a podcast about some of the interesting, important, and entertaining stories you might have missed in local newspapers this week. It's a bit like a newspaper review, but for local newspapers and news websites. I'm Chloe Lavasuch, and it's the week ending Sunday, November 8th, 2020. In national and international news this week, They did it. Joe Biden has been elected President of the United States of America with Kamala Harris as Vice President. News which news website Ayrshire Daily News chose to announce as South Ayrshire Golf Club owner loses 2020 presidential election. Thank you to angry people in local newspapers for sharing that one. It's also the week in which another national lockdown began in England, and the first citywide coronavirus testing service was launched in Liverpool. It's been a busy week in local newspapers too a special mention to the whole daily mail which raised thousands of pounds to help vulnerable children and families affected by food poverty with a campaign called give us your lunch money in this week's episode we'll hear stories about not one but two huge boa constrictor snakes on the loose the launch of a new museum of plastic bags and a duck wearing a bow tie spotted sitting in the front seat of a car I mean, the headlines of these stories is probably all you really need to know. I was also lucky enough to be joined by Peter Barron. He's the former editor of the Northern Echo. He was editor for 18 years for a chat about newspaper campaigns, how he got his first job in journalism by being mistaken for a young Jeremy Clarkson, his tips for young journalists and what happens when things go wrong. Peter is a wonderful storyteller and very generously shared several funny, heartfelt and really interesting stories with me, so if you only have about 20 minutes to listen then I'd really recommend skipping ahead to about minute 10. Links to all of the stories in this episode can be found in the description, or follow us on Twitter at The Headlines Pod. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to keep seeing stories like this reported in the news, please support your local newspaper by buying a copy. For now though, let's get on with the podcast so for our first story this week workers at an amazon distribution center in cornwall say they have been underpaid by hundreds of pounds and when one employee asked a manager when he would get paid he said he was sent a picture of a tiny violin and told to stop complaining this is a story from cornwall live by their chief reporter lee trawieler The story says staff went to the newspaper because their emails, phone calls and messages were being ignored by Amazon and employment agency ADECO, which employed and was responsible for the workers' wages. One employee showed the journalist emails showing that he asked for a late payment of £267 through all of September. Matt Fern, another employee, was sent a gif of a person playing a tiny violin when he asked for money he was owed. An ADECO spokesperson told the newspaper that all outstanding payments have now been made and that the tiny violin gift was not sent by any member of staff from the agency. And Amazon told the newspaper that the the issue was with ADECO. A huge boa constrictor could be on the loose after its shedded skin was found beside a busy road in Oxford. This story from the Oxford Mail by journalist James Roberts went a bit bonkers last week, uh, unsurprisingly. And the front page of the paper on Tuesday showed a seven-year-old girl holding up this five and a half foot long snake skin. The seven-year-old, Amelia Druitt, found the skin beside the road. The snake could be up to ten foot long, but experts say they are not poisonous and they eat rodents and small birds, so they're not likely to come after your household cat. But Colin Stevenson from Crocodiles of the World Zoo said the snake is unlikely to survive until Christmas in the wild in England. In other boa constrictor news, not something I expected to be saying this week, three days later, a boa constrictor was rescued from someone's garden in South Essex. This is according to a story from the Basildon, Canvey and Southend Echo by journalist Robbie Bryson. Apparently it's more than 95 miles uh, between Oxford and South Essex, so I'm not sure that the same boa constrictor would have made it all that way in three days. (laughs) Next up, this story from local democracy reporter Tom Dare. 155 children were found staying at just one bed and breakfast in Birmingham during the first lockdown. According to the story from the Birmingham Mail, 85 families were living at the address, with up to four people sharing a room. A councillor told the paper the families had no means of cooking and no means of education. Councillor Lisa Trickett said the first lockdown really flagged up across the board the levels of housing need in our city and region. Coronavirus conspiracy theory leaflets were left on car windscreens at a hospital to be found by NHS staff working on the front line of the pandemic and the families of patients suffering from the virus. This story is from the Plymouth Herald by journalist Stuart Abel. A hospital worker told the newspaper the scaremongering leaflets were posted on cars parked at Derryford Hospital, where 90 patients have died after testing positive for the virus. According to the newspaper, the leaflets said the deaths of people with coronavirus are not serious and claimed the pandemic was exaggerated to restrict liberties and generate profits. The hospital worker said the claims were total rubbish and he would not be against it being made illegal for people to make such claims. He told the newspaper the leaflets were bad for NHS staff working on Covid wards and in intensive care and bad for bereaved families and people who have the virus. Next up, this story sounds like the basis for a crime thriller. A Harry Potter fan who owns a rare first edition of the book Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone said he fears for his life after another book collector was murdered. This story is from the Daily Record by journalists Andy Shipley and Gary Armstrong. It says the 54-year-old from near Glasgow is raffling off his first edition, which is worth £40,000, but that he wants to remain anonymous after another book collector was murdered in 2016. He told the paper there are just 500 UK first editions of the book and called it the Holy Grail for collectors, adding that a man was killed for one of the books. He said the murder of Adrian Greenwood by Michael Danaher in 2016 sent shockwaves right through the Harry Potter collecting world and that nobody ever meets in person if they are selling one of these books now. But rare book dealer Adrian Harrington told the newspaper it is obvious why people selling a valuable item want to stay anonymous because it could lead to a theft. Staying in Scotland now, Edinburgh City Council spent more than £14 million on external consultants last year. And the year before, in 2018, it spent more than £10 million on consultants. This story is from the Edinburgh Evening News by local democracy reporter Joseph Anderson. Several consultancy firms worked on council projects including a cycle scheme design, road user safety audits, a bridge demolition scheme and the Edinburgh Trams project. And some of the consultants appear to have saved the local authority millions of pounds according to the article. One firm apparently And excuse me while I go into counselees here, as it's a quote from a council report in the story. One firm apparently delivered approximately £190 million of savings, including cost avoidance savings. Councillors at a meeting said consultants are employed because they have a specialist knowledge. But one of the councillors asked if the local authority could not just employ staff of its own with specialist knowledge. (laughs) And finally, and I've just realised that this is a story from Scotland as well, what can I say, they do local news well, a museum dedicated to plastic bags has been launched. Glasgow artist Katrina Cobain has opened the online museum, which focuses on single-use carrier bags dating back as far as the 1970s. This story is from Glasgow Live by journalist Craig Williams. It says the museum is dedicated to archiving the bags as pieces of social history, as single-use plastic carrier bags begin to disappear. There are pictures of Katrina with bags advertising Marlborough cigarettes, bags marking the millennium, and even plastic bags marking the royal wedding between Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Katrina says the Woolworths bags are her favourites and told the paper the inspiration for the plastic bag museum came from thinking about landfill sites and the lifetime of a plastic bag. She said she was thinking about how Egyptian objects give us an insight into a previous civilization, and how the landfall sites of today could end up being the archaeological digs of the future. And now, I was lucky enough to have a good chat with Peter Barron last month, so here we go.
1: It's been um, it's interesting, certainly... It's certainly an interesting time, isn't it? But um, I think it's been... From a, journalistically, for me, because I write a page every week and, you know, the stories have been really kind of inspiring because it's people are doing such great things. My, my first job was um, as a trainee reporter on a, the Scunthorpe Evening Telegraph. That's when I started. And, and that was a bit of a, um, a silly claim to fame because that was when I went for that job. There were two other people in for the job. Um, one was Heather, who I ended up marrying. And the other person that went for that job was Jeremy Clarkson. And they meant to give the job to Jeremy Clarkson, but they got the two of us mixed up because we both had very curly hair. And they got our, they got our papers mixed up. So I, I got the job by mistake. And they meant to give it to a young Jeremy Clarkson. And I, I didn't know this for 20 years. Years or something. It was 20 years before I found out that I'd actually got Jeremy Clarkson's job by mistake on scum for the Scunthorpe <laughs> Evening Telegraph. So that's how my career started for as a reporter. So I was a reporter. From 1984, I worked my way up through the news desk. I became deputy editor. I was acting editor for nine months and then didn't get the job. So that was a bit of a a disappointment at the time. And that's when I went to the Hartlepool Mail. So I went to the Hartlepool Mail as editor in 1997. And then I came back to the Northern Echo uh, two years later um, as editor. So I was editor from 1999 to 2016.
0: You were you were there for quite a long time, weren't you?
1: Yeah, well, I was there from you know 1984 until 2016, and I'm still a columnist for the paper now. So I still write for the paper. So it's kind of been my life, really. And I came to the Northern Echo because um, I'm from the northeast originally. I grew up in Middlesbrough and. Um, the Northern Echo, to me, was always the paper for the northeast, and what I loved about it was that it had this reputation for campaigning journalism. So, right the way back to its second editor in 1871, it was William Stead. He kind of laid the foundations for campaigning journalism in this country, and then people like Harold Evans, Sir Evans, in the 1960s, had this um, this passion for campaigning journalism, and the paper had developed this reputation for being a paper that changed the world and that's what appealed to me
0: fantastic I mean I know it's got a uh, incredible reputation I remember you, you telling us about the importance of campaigning for local newspapers and that's certainly something that maybe local newspapers do for their local
1: communities oh absolutely I think you know because local newspapers are so close to their communities and embedded in their communities some of the best campaigns I think begin at the grassroots and we see we see the need for something to change and we're able to um to to tackle that issue and get local people on our side and um and sometimes it it starts there and then it, it it develops and it and it's picked up by the nationals but as long as as long as we are always looking out for opportunities to campaign and, and make a difference and I think that's what local newspapers do incredibly well and it was lovely the other day when I was looking on Twitter and the behind the local news did that kind of list of 80 journalists and I know you were amongst them Um it was the public interest news list and it was journalists now young journalists who were doing incredible things and um, campaigning and investigating and just making a difference so that was great to see and, uh, and for me that was, the, that was always the driver for me. And when you get to the end of your career, which I'm kind of getting towards now, the things that you look back on, what I would say to young journalists is that what you will remember in years to come is the, the stories that made a difference the campaigns that you were able to work on that uh, that changed the world.
0: I mean, are you able to tell me a bit about, I mean, you've done a lot of campaigns. Um, are you able to tell me about a couple of them that, that have really meant a lot to you? I, I just thinking specifically, I remember you, you told me and a group of other um, trainee journalists about your campaign about the year and the day rule, which I remember being a very sort of sad and quite shocking story.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this could have happened. This could have happened in any community in the country, but it happened to be Darlington, and um, and it was about a man called Michael Gibson, and Michael was twenty two years old, and uh, he was walking through Darlington town centre one day, and um, he was attacked by a, a thug. For no reason an unprovoked attack and he was punched and he went down and he banged his head and Michael went into a coma. He was in a coma for 16 months and at the time in this country there was a, a piece of legislation called the year and a day rule and what that meant was that if you were attacked and you lived for a year and a day the attack couldn't be charged with murder or manslaughter they could only be charged with assault And because Michael lived for 16 months his attacker could only be charged with with assault and he was out of prison before Michael's mother turned off the life support machine now this piece of legislation went back to the 11th century you know and when there weren't things like life support machine it just struck me and the other journalists around me that this was a terrible kind of scandal that you know the law really was an ass in this instance and and we set about campaigning to scrap the year and a day rule because it was it was just out of date and uh, we were very lucky because Michael's mother Pat was a very brave woman and she allowed us into the hospital to take a photograph of Michael while he was in the coma and it went on the front page and got the readers to sign petitions and it took a long time but the year in a day rule was scrapped because of the Northern Echo's campaign which we called Justice for Michael. So if people now are in that situation again there are cases now that come through the courts where people can be charged with murder and manslaughter because of what a local newspaper did.
0: Uh, an incredible legacy and something that people might not realise happened because of a campaign instigated by the Northern Echo. I mean are there any other sort of campaigns that stand out that you yeah. think you're particularly proud of? Yeah I mean
1: well the one the one that I think I think all editors have have a campaign that, that may means the most to them and um, the one for me I suppose it was because it was very close to home it involved a friend of mine so there was a photographer on the Northern Echo called Ian Weir 20 years ago and Ian was a friend of mine so we'd sort of trained together and um You know, we we were friends as well as colleagues and and we were playing golf one morning and he didn't feel very well um, and he needed to stop playing golf. And it turned out that he was having a heart attack, although it wasn't confirmed that it was a heart attack until a few days later when he had some tests. So he was then off work. He was 38 years old. He was a father of two. He was lovely. He had a a great sense of humour. He was a, a great photographer and um, he was off work waiting for a triple heart bypass operation and he waited and waited and um, in the end he waited for eight months while he was off work I was as as his editor I was going around to see him to check on him and um, while I was there one day he asked me if I would deliver a letter to Tony Blair because Tony Blair was the MP for Sedgefield at the time, but he was also the prime minister. So he was our local MP, but he was also the prime minister. And I had a lot of access to him because when you're the editor of the prime minister's local newspaper, you do get kind of privileged access. So he wrote a letter saying how long he'd waited for a heart bypass operation. And I gave that letter to Tony Blair and um, not long after that, Ian died waiting still for a heart bypass operation he died after waiting eight months and at the time we had a brilliant health editor called barry nelson barry was given sort of you know all he all all he was asked to do for the for the foreseeable future was concentrate on campaigning to cut heart bypass waiting times in britain because at the time the average waiting time in this country for a heart bypass was 12 months and we discovered that in other parts of Europe, the average waiting time was three months. And we got very angry about that because we'd lost a friend and a colleague who'd waited too long. And why was there this gap? Why, why were we waiting longer in this country than the rest of Europe? And again, we campaigned and we campaigned. I published the letter that I'd given to Tony Blair on the front page. And it just absolutely took off. The Nationals got involved. Um, National Television got involved. Trevor Mack. Donald came up to do a program on it and you know the Northern Echo instigated that campaign and the outcome was that heart bypass waiting times in this country were cut to an average of three months in line with the rest of Europe.
0: That's fantastic what an amazing success and you know what an amazing sort of reputation that that must have been for the paper to do that for the community. I mean I have to ask um, I think that there I mean, I get the sense that local papers now are a bit more hesitant to campaign for fear of being unsuccessful, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on that.
1: You can never guarantee the success of a campaign when you when you set out we we didn 't know that we would be able to scrap the year and a day rule uh, we didn 't know that we would be able to cut out bypass waiting times but If you don't try, if you don't aim high, I mean there was a really good example of this when we're at one of our local football clubs, Bishop Auckland Football Club. Going back to the 1950s, Bishop Auckland Football Club was the most famous amateur football club of its day. In 1958 the Munich air disaster happened, which which was where Manchester United and their aeroplane crashed and a lot of players were killed in the Munich air disaster. And Bishop Auckland, as the local amateur football club at the time, gave Manchester United a number of their best players to continue the season. Now, all those years later, Bishop Auckland Football Club was about to go out of, um, out of business. They were going bankrupt. So I wrote a letter, as editor of the Northern Echo, I wrote a letter to Sir Alex Ferguson, the manager of Manchester United, and said, look, in 1958, Bishop Auckland came to your rescue after the Munich air disaster, you owe a debt of honour to this little football club that's going to go out of business. And the point you were making was that, you know, you, you fear failure. Well, everybody laughed at that letter because they all said, oh, it'll go straight in the bin. He won't take any notice of it. And I got a letter back from Sir Alex Ferguson saying that we were quite right and uh, Manchester United were going to send a football team to play in a charity match at Bishop Auckland's football ground. And Manchester United came to this little football ground in County Durham, played a football match, and you could have filled the stadium a hundred times over. And the people of Bishop Auckland will never forget the day that Manchester United came and saved their local football club. So, you know, in answer to your point, that was tilting at windmills, really. You never know what you're going to get back. But if you don't try, then you'll never know.
0: I think there's a lot of uh, journalism in that, isn't there? Even when you think that you're going to be unsuccessful, uh, you always have to ask the question and give it a go.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you've got to give it a go and and never be afraid to aim high, you know, because you, can, you you are in a position to change the world. You've got this incredible opportunity through the power of the written word, probably more so than ever now, because the reach that journalists have got through the internet and social media, you know, you've got an incredible privilege and and I I passionately believe that you should use that to try and do good things. Obviously you've got to report the news and you know, there's times where you've got to do all kinds of different things, but always look look for opportunities to change the world and use your position.
0: That's a really inspiring message, especially to sort of younger journalists, because I don't think that people automatically think of journalists as necessarily being entirely driven by ethics.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, in my experience, I think, you know, especially in the local in the local press, I've come across, I mean, I've worked in the local press for 40 years now, and what's always struck me is that I've been surrounded by people, not just on the Northern Echo, but on other newspapers who really believe that, you know, that they are in this this privileged position where they can change things. And I've always admired the way the local press has actually tried to change things and make a difference. And it's still doing that. I think we're, we're very ethically driven. And I think the reason for that is that because we're so close to our communities, you know, I mean, because I've worked in the Northeast for a long time, I can't walk down the street without somebody stopping me either to tell me a story or to complain about something or, did i know this and it makes you so much more accountable because you're writing about the people that are around you whereas if you work for uh, the sun and you come up from london to to do a story you're gone the next day you know you're not part of the community in the same way that we are and i think that makes a huge difference
0: definitely and um i have to say uh Everyone I've spoken to has has wonderful things to say about you, but one of the things they always say is that you uh, definitely put yourself out there and go and speak to everyone, you know, from parish meetings to businesses. How important is that to journalism now, do you think?
1: It's very different now. I mean, I've been out of, uh, out of it for um, four years in terms of being an editor, you know, but I'm still out there because i'm still working as a freelance journalist and uh, running my own media business and you know i've always believed in it i mean right from the beginning i've i've done talks at everything from wis to townswomen's guilds to Probus clubs i've got out there i remember harold evans telling me this you know that he he felt it was very important to get out and listen and observe and be part of the community so i remember when when i turned the northern echo tabloid it was it was a momentous thing for a, a newspaper like the northern echo which had been a traditional broadsheet and when i turned it tabloid it was on the back of 7 years of going out talking to people hearing what they had to say what their frustrations were how they thought the paper was too big and unwieldy and you know there were there were other people who didn't want it to be turned tabloid but over over 7 years i was left with this very clear impression that the readers wanted the paper to change. And um, so I think it's, it's really crucial. And I think one of the concerns I've, I've got now is that I don't think a lot of editors have that opportunity anymore, not through any fault of their own at all, but because of the, the way that the business has changed, they're much more kind of desk bound now. And I know we have social media and, you know, you can build relationships without any doubt through social media. I just don't think you can ever replace the value of getting out and showing your face and being part of the community. And and I, I think that pays dividends every day for me now. And I think it, it would pay dividends for, for every journalist. But I completely understand that it, it's not as easy as it used to be.
0: Definitely. I mean, I wanted to ask you a bit about the sort of future of journalism in a moment, but I also wanted to ask if uh, if you have any very memorable stories that that you'd want to share with uh, sort of any journalists listening. I know you must have loads. You certainly, I've certainly read and heard quite a lot. The, the story about the, um, the football team and the goalie that we spoke about in email to the to that shocking story about the planning inspector. Yeah. No, there's the
1: story about the goalie is of one, I mean I think that's one of the funniest ones which was, um, this is real grassroots journalism but um, there's a football club called Cockfield um, which is a little village in County Durham and they have a Sunday morning football team and the goalie was a guy called Daz Denham and um, they were getting beat 7-0 and the goalie was very peeved with the performance of his defence so he decided that he was going to walk off and he said that's it I've had enough and he took his gloves off started to walk, walk off and the fullback was a guy called Ergin Ozap who owned the local fast food takeaway and he shouted at Daz he says no Daz don't go stay if you stay I'll give you two pizzas and a kebab and uh, Daz Daz still wouldn't be moved he said no I'm off I've had enough so uh, Ergin said well I'll give you three pizzas and a kebab to which point um Daz stopped halfway across the pitch and said okay but they better be 12 inch pizzas. <laughs> and I just think it's really uh it's it's that kind of I love those kind of grassroots moments that you know you can only capture if you know people and they're going to pick up the phone and tell you this has just happened. Um, my favorite story people often say what's your favorite story over all the years that you've worked and the story that apart from the campaigns and important stuff like that the one that always sticks in my mind is um is when my children were small and um we'd gone through the night it was it was the morning after the first gulf war broke out and i think they'd started bombing baghdad at two o'clock in the morning and we'd gone through the whole night doing a war edition and um the next morning was a saturday morning and uh and I said to my wife, let's just, you know, I need some, I need some fresh air. Let's just go, go out with the kids. And we took the children down to a place called Thorpe Peril, which you might know in North Yorkshire. It's a beauty spot in North Yorkshire. And um, we took them for a picnic. And um, there was a falconry display going on. Um, and the children went off to watch this falconry display. And I was kind of just having a picnic on the grass with my wife and feeling a bit tired from the night before. And there was a man on a, a microphone giving a commentary about all the different birds of prey, the eagle owl and the peregrine falcon. And he was talking to the children about the different birds of prey. And then he he started to tell this story, which I was kind of overhearing. And he said that they had a hawk called Harry, but they'd had to ban him from taking part in the displays because he was very naughty and he was landing on people's heads during the display. And they had to coax him off with a bit of chicken and it was quite frightening for people when this bird of prey landed on their heads and i started listening to this story and i thought this sounds like a good story and then he said the words that made me realize i had a story that would go all over the world and he said a children gala last week he said it was awful because he landed on this man's head and when he flew off he took his wig with him <laughs> and um, he flew to the top of a tree with this poor man's wig well At that point, I was running across the field to interview this man about this story because that story went in the Northern Echo and it then went, it went all over the world, you know, the bird of prey that stole a man's wig at a counter-durham gala. So that's the story that I always remember, that if you're not there, if you're not out and about and you're not listening, you miss these gems that are going to not only make people smile in your newspaper, but they're going to make people smile all over the world.
0: Exactly. And that's a wonderful example of the um, sort of mix of what local newspapers do. I think they get a lot of, uh, they've become the butt of people's jokes sometimes when they run sort of lighter hearted stories. But I love that about yeah. local newspapers. You don't, I mean, when you see those stories in the nationals, this is exactly where they
1: come from. Absolutely. You know, national newspapers troll local newspapers looking for these little gems and um, they're they're there every day and it's fantastic so when you get a phone call like I did in that case I got a phone call from a radio station in New Zealand saying could you come on and talk about the the hawk that stole the man's wig and you just think this is just fantastic you know it's such a great job and it's still a great job because you never know when you wake up in the morning you never know what you're going to see what you're going to hear that is going to either change the world or make people smile it's just fantastic.
0: Well, it's good to hear, because I think that we uh, get quite a lot of doom and gloom about the future of local newspapers, unfortunately. And uh, I did want to ask you uh, what your sort of advice and thoughts might be for the younger generation of journalists who might just be starting.
1: I mean, I think, you know, there's no hiding from the fact that these are very difficult and challenging times for local newspapers. I mean, I would be lying if I I tried to, you know, put too much gloss on it, because, you know, the big... The problem we face at the moment is how do we make it pay? You know, how are we going to fund a sustainable model um, that allows us to employ journalists? And we, in lots of in lots of cases now, we just don't have the resources on local newspapers to be able to do everything that editors and the journalists that work for them want to do. So I think we've got a resource issue, and that has led to. Um, you know, challenges where journalists don't have the time to get out as much as, as we, we used to. On the other hand, I think it's also a really exciting time because, you know, we, we can do things now that, you know, we could have only dreamed of in, in in the in the days when I was starting out, you know. Oh, sorry, Chloe. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can't I think we can do things now that we could only dream of back in the 1980s when I started. You know, we can compete with telly and radio now because we can be immediate, whereas we always used to have to wait 24 hours to get our stories in the paper. We can reach audiences within seconds now and so and what i would say to to young journalists is look you know you, you still are involved in a fantastic profession it is difficult it is challenging i don't know i wish i was clever enough to know what the future holds but i think there are really kind of important things happening like you know the advent of the local democracy report which i know you're one of them i think that's been a really positive development you know partnering the bbc to make sure that we're still holding public bodies to account, I think has been really important. I think the other thing is that I I've thought for a long time, um, you know, and I've been saying for an, an awful long time, that I think individual reporters are going to become more and more marketable as kind of brands in themselves. Because I think a lot of the time now, you follow the story from social media and it takes you as a reader wherever that that link is going to take you. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that our brands as news organisations aren't important because they still are. But what I do think is that individual reporters who take the time to build relationships and where there's some longevity as well and they've, they've had the chance to make an impression on communities and build trust, I think those individual journalists will become more and more marketable themselves. People will go to the individual journalist much more than they ever have done. So what I would say is build yourselves up, build relationships, everything that you do, tweet, Facebook, Instagram, link it all together so you, as a person, are becoming the go-to person in that area. It's about making yourself as visible as possible now.
0: And it's something that you're doing as well, still on, on social media, you've got a big following and and I know you do a lot of uh, engaging with people through social media, through your headline challenges and, and sharing stuff yeah. that have sort of caught your eye.
1: Yeah, well, the headline challenge has been going for 13 years now, and it's just a bit of fun on, on BBC radio. So um, what I do is I pick, a, I pick a story from somewhere around the world, something that makes me laugh, and then I come up with a headline, post it on social media, and challenge people to come up with a better headline than me. And then we go on the radio the next morning and play it out on the radio. So I go on the radio, tell the story, tell my headline, and then the listeners of the radio have an hour to come up with a better headline and it's being it's it's really good fun and people really it gets their brains working i think in the morning everybody loves it loves a good quirky headline the only downside is that you get double points on the radio it's like a game between the northern echo versus the bbc who can come up with the best headline and it's um, points are awarded every day and it's double points if it's a song title A film or a book so unfortunately it involves me singing on the radio quite regularly and I am by my own admission a terrible terrible singer Um, but it is good fun going back to what I was saying about becoming an individual kind of brand it really has paid off over the last four years because all the time I invested in building up that kind of reputation when you go into business further down the line or wherever you know whatever you end up doing It is a real currency to be able to say to people that you have a large social media following. So never underestimate every follower you get. It's it's building up the awareness that you are there. So, for example, I got a phone call last week from the local athletics club, Darlington Harriers. And they said, look, on Saturday, one of our members it was an 86-year-old man called Ian Barnes is going to run in a race and try and break the British record for a mile. Five-year-olds, over, so people who were over 85, and they said, would you come down and would you run in the race? You know, you get those phone calls because you, you're well-known. And um, so I ran in the race and, you know, my intention was to jog around with this old old gentleman and keep him company and be his pacemaker. And within 100 metres, I knew I couldn't keep up with him. <laughs> and so, you know, the story went in the Northern Echo on Monday. It's in the Daily Mirror today, the Daily Mail today. The Jeremy Vine show has been on to ask if they can have him on the programme. And and then I've written my own column about, you know, a funny kind of take on trying to keep up with this man who'd given me 30 years' start. So, but the point is that, people come to you because they know you and they trust you and that's what you've got to set out at the beginning of your career, you've got to set out to try and build that kind of rapport and reputation because that's where the stories come from.
0: Um, I I have to ask because I think this is something that a lot of local news journalists get asked all the time, were you never sort of inclined to go to the National?
1: I, I was asked once, I was asked, you know, there was Two things in my life. Once when I was asked to go to the Daily Mirror <laughs> and, um, and the Daily Mirror, you know, I was always I love the Northeast. I'm passionate about the Northeast. This is where I want to be. And and I love and I still love the Northern Echo. And and I I didn't really sort of have the sort of ambition to go work on a national because I just loved that closeness to the community. And in terms of being an MP, I'm far too thin-skinned to be an MP, so I kind of said no to to that, because I don't think I could stand the criticism.
0: (laughs) I think I missed a bit. um, I think it cut out when you were talking about being an mp what happened
1: there it was just a suggestion you know from a you know the the local kind of um, labor party about whether or not i would be interested in putting myself forward and and i thought about it for a while and um, but i realized that i was too thin skinned i never had been able to put up with the uh, the criticism <clears throat> and but also i i also think i would have been able to toe the party line very well because um at the you know speak my mind to too much probably and, and I think as a journalist you know as an editor every day I was having to express an opinion in the leader columns every day and uh, you know I found myself criticising and praising all local parties all, all political parties you know I was never ever put in a position where I was told to take the paper in a political direction which I think is a, another great kind of strength of the local press that you know when we, we don't have that kind of pressure put upon us and um, you just you, you write what you believe so yeah I never I never took the the opportunity to be an, an or just to stand as an MP any further and I never wanted to go to London.
0: And also to highlight that that local newspapers don't have to have that political allegiance that traditionally national papers do have.
1: Oh no I mean that is absolutely true in forty years no not one managing director, not one chief executive has said to me um, that you mustn't um, you, you must take the paper in a, politi- in a in a particular political direction. I always had complete freedom and you know there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that some of the finest journalists in this country work on local newspapers and have never wanted to go you know onto the nationals that's not to say that you you know if you want to go onto the nationals and you have an ambition to work on a national stage that is absolutely fine but you don't have to because there are brilliant journalists who have stayed with the local press and also don't forget that you know when you work for local newspapers your stories end up on the national stage anyway you know the, the heart bypass campaign um, was a national campaign that began at the Northern Echo. We instigated it, we drove it but your work, your legacy is on, a, is, is on a national and international sort of level so you don't have to work directly for a national to be able to do that.
0: So um, lots of things have obviously gone right in your career and you've got a, a brilliant reputation but can you tell me about some of the things that may have gone wrong? <laughs>
1: Oh, lots has gone wrong. And, you know, you make lots of mistakes and, um, you know, every journalist setting out in their career, one thing is guaranteed, you will make mistakes. And it's about how you respond to those mistakes, really. So the ones that stick in my mind is we we have literals in in newspapers, which is where you miss one letter out of a word. Two classic examples that I remember. One was we, we put a little page to remind people that it was the end of British summertime. And the message on the front page, 70,000 copies of the Northern Echo went out with the message. It was supposed to say, don't forget to put your clocks back this weekend. And we missed the L out of clocks. Well, the world went berserk that day. And the other one was birth announcement in the paper, which was to Mr. and Mrs. Jordan, the gift of a son. And we missed the F out of gift Um, so we didn't ask the uh, family to pay for that advert at all. So things do, you know, things do go wrong. And even with campaigns, you were talking earlier about, you know, when you set out on a campaign, you don't know whether you're going to fail or be successful. I mean, we have had spectacular kind of failures as well. And I remember there was one called, the, the, the name of the campaign was the Forgotten Prisoner. And it was a guy called Maurice Bland and he'd been locked up for an extraordinary length of time because he was a, a serial arsonist and he'd served longer in prison than lots of murderers. And, and this story kind of emerged that he was in a local prison and, one of our reporters wanted to sort of launch a campaign to get him freed. And uh, anyway, we dubbed him the Forgotten Prisoner and we managed to, uh, t- to get him free- freed. And he promptly set fire to a barn. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so we <laughs> was going, going to go straight back to, uh, to, to doing that. And then there was another one where it was involving um, uh, people with mobility scooters were, were having their mobility scooters taken off them. Disabled people in some new kind of clamp down by the government. Um, some new, some new rules. And we had a, a lady who was disabled, and she was going to lose her mobility scooter. And we campaigned to get her mobility scooter back for her. And within a week of getting it back, she uh, was convicted for drink driving in her mobility scooter, wow. driving down a pave. Her mum pushing a pushchair had to dive out the way. <laughs> you know, so things like that. You, you never know what the outcome's going to be, but you just have to set out with the intention of doing something that you think is going to change the world for the better or change the world for, for your readers, um, and that's what you've got to do.
0: If nothing else, it sounds like uh, maybe they got a different sort of story out of those campaigns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it turned out to, to, be, to be a lot different to the way we expected it to, be, to, to turn out, that's for sure. I think it was. I think it was when the judge in the Morris Bland case sort of said, "You know, I don't care how much a newspaper campaigns in the future, you will be spending the rest of your days behind bars," <laughs> <that."> um, <clears throat> or some words to that effect.
0: Well, um, this has been really, really entertaining to chat to you about this. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. That's everything for this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to Peace Barron for taking the time to chat. I'll post a link to some of the Northern Echo's prominent campaigns in the description and on the Twitter page. And you can follow Pete Barron on Twitter at Pete Barron Media. If you're interested in getting involved or just want to say hello, please do get in touch with me on Twitter through at the Headlines Pod or at Chloe Lavasuch. And hope to see you again next week. Thanks so much. Bye.